Today, we have a guest from the one, the only, Yale. Don't say it like that. Like what? <laughs> Yale? Yeah, Yale. Are we starting on Yale jokes? Is that... We either start on them or end on them. Either way, I'm making fun of Yale. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I even have anything left on Yale, to be honest, after our conversation that we just had. Yeah, we actually really used up all of the Yale bits in the actual episode. We kind of went hard. Speak for yourself. I'm chill. The thing is, okay, the two topics of this episode are like... Trigger warning. Rape and Yale. <laughs> and like... The, and the thing is, is that you no. can't joke about rape, so you have to joke about Yale. <laughs> I guess you get the pass this time. Today, we're talking to Amal Biskin, yale consent educator and student journalist about blacklist frats, rape culture, and systems of justice on the Yale campus. See what I mean? <laughs> All right. When you put it like that, or I guess when I put it like that, <laughs> I'm Evangelia. And I'm Emily. And welcome to What's Gonna Happen. Hi, Amal. Hi. So you DM'd us and you gave us like kind of a rundown of some of the insanity that's going down on the Yale campus and like the stuff that you've been working on sounds so interesting and we're flattered that you want to bring that story here. So we were so like when we saw that DM, like it was like when a dog's ears perk up when you say all of its favorite things like that's Evangelia's joke, by the way, (laughs) giving credit. I think I've like followed. Evangelia for a minute because of mutuals <laughs> and yeah the podcast you know my ex yeah and, and I'm best <laughs> friends with your ex and lesbian yeah. world is small um and um yeah and like saw your guys titles for podcast names and my dog ears perked up and I was like wait this is so sick <laughs> and then started listening and then was like wait they're so smart and funny I'm obsessed with them <laughs> yeah so thank this you. is like thank my, you blushing yeah. so tell us like everything about you I guess and like what you do I am a junior at Yale I'm from New York City. I'm involved in a lot of campus journalism. I write for a magazine called The New Journal. And I also have this job called Communication and Consent Education, which means I'm hired by the Yale Dean's Office to lead workshops on communication and consent at the start of each semester. And then, like, throughout the year, meet with students one-on-one and refer them to resources. And I get, like, pretty extensive training on consent That's, So you're the person that that basically says, you know, if she doesn't want the tea, don't give her the tea. Like, you're the one who sits down and teaches people how not to rape each other. Is that Right, in so many words. I mean, like, we use a slightly different approach than what you offered. Um, but That's what I, they told us in school. Yeah, they yeah. made us watch that, like, YouTube video. Yeah, with the stick figures drawn on a whiteboard or something. Ooh, it's like, if she's sleeping, she doesn't want tea. Got it. <laughs> I mean, we have a similar, we have, like, a practice asking your friend out to coffee and, like, imagine a scenario where they don't have you ever had like a shitty like right-wing guy like react badly to these i have to um honestly not so much we're doing them with first years and they're like in orientation and so freaked out by so many things that i think that who wants to be that guy like (laughs) you'd be surprised i honestly feel like that's like a a yale kind of thing to happen to be like fuck the consent educator i feel like they would do that i don't know i have a lot of preconceived notions (laughs) they definitely do that like after the fact i haven't luckily knock on wood had anyone like 
straight up say that to my face while I'm leading a workshop. I think that's that the good. thing that throws them the most is that we dispel the like one drop rule with alcohol because a lot of public high schools in America teach like if you've had a drop of alcohol, you can't give consent anymore. And Yale's policy is like consent can exist with inebriation. It's more like complicated and nuanced, but it's not necessarily off the table. And that really blows their minds because they're like, wait, I thought that you could just not consent anymore. And we're like, well, it's like a personal choice and it's complicated and we like help. So how do you teach people how to navigate that gray area? Because that feels like it comes up a lot on college campuses. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So they also get like a decent amount of alcohol safety training um, in their orientation. So we like draw on the information that they've been taught with that, where it's like looking for signs of like, like serious inebriation versus just like low level drunkenness and kind of asking yourself these questions about like what your personal boundaries are before you get into a situation where you're drunk. You're not like making decisions on the fly when you're already compromised. Being drunk changes your willingness to act on things but doesn't change what you want. So there's this example of like someone who's lactose intolerant but really likes pizza and if they go out drinking with their friends and end up at a pizza place they'll probably end up eating the pizza but when i'm sober yeah (laughs) (laughs) state um it's like they don't forget about being lactose intolerant they just like choose to ignore it and deal with the consequences later because the cues of like later consequences are more abstract for them Whereas if someone like is lactose mm-hmm. intolerant and also thinks pizza is gross, they're not going to eat pizza when they're drunk because it doesn't like change what they want. So in a similar vein, like if someone has decided that they don't want to be sexually active, they're not going to decide to be sexually active when they're drunk or like decide to hook up with someone who they don't want to hook up with. I feel like the, I've definitely known people who have like not been, slept with anybody for like a year because they've been like intentionally celibate or whatever and then drink and then like something happens. Like right. it just feels like it, it's still crossing a self boundary that you wouldn't have otherwise maybe because of feeling pressured or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that has definitely happened to theoretically people that I might know, not myself. Um, but Yeah, we talk about the differentiation between, like, regret and the way that people can conflate regret and assault um, in retrospect, and that there's, like, the notion of unwanted consensual sex. So, like, you can consent in the moment and then look back on it and realize that it was unwanted, and that's far more likely to happen in circumstances where one or more people are drunk. That one sucks. That one really, really (laughs) sucks. Yeah. So we try to tell them that consent is like the baseline. Like consent is the thing that differentiates assault and non-assault or rape and non-rape. And that's like the lowest level of what we're looking for in a positive sexual encounter. It's interesting that you guys touch on that. Yeah, we did not get that at my orientation. Like, how to tell if someone's too drunk to fuck class. And also, like, differentiating regret and, like, feeling violated. It's very... It goes deep. Everyone, at least in their first two years, lives on campus. You can't commute or live off campus. And so I think that's something to think about. It's just, like, they have this huge quantity of 18-year-olds living together for the first time. It's, It's interesting to me that these workshops are led in the context of two upperclassmen and a room full of first years so there's no like adult or administrator in the room and they could very easily just like put all of the first years in a giant lecture hall and have some person stand in front of them and give them the same spiel that we give them but we like choose to do it in a seminar um and I think that it like 
implicitly shows them that like they are the people who determine the sexual culture on campus because like ideally the students are the people who will be having sex with each other not like mm. students and administrators <laughs> uh, fingers crossed but i've seen pretty little liars and that happens <laughs> i will say that like at my school like there and i don't want to say what school i go to because i'm like paranoid about people like <laughs> doxing me around yeah, all of our haters <laughs> but like i go to a school with a big frat culture and like they don't have these nuanced conversations i guess i wish that those existed at, at all colleges i think everybody could benefit yeah, so the CCE program, Communication and Consent, it's, like, come under fire a little bit for, like, not doing enough or being sort of just good optics for the university um, where they can, like, check a box and say, we're doing this, and so we don't have to worry about what's actually going on. Because it's not to say that, like, assaults are not happening on Yale's campus. Like, every year there's some big news story that comes out that's covered by the student newspaper. How often does that kind of stuff happen there? Um, I would say there's, like, a big instance that gets a lot of coverage once or twice a year but I mean in my two years being a student on campus I've heard of quite a few incidents I mean it doesn't feel like it's just like solving the problem and we live in some like utopia where there's a perfect sexual culture on campus. I mean, yeah, we don't live in a society that facilitates a perfect sexual culture and there's no way that like some 22-year-olds can like convince everybody in the room in like a 30-minute block. But I think it's really good that you guys do it at all because there are definitely people who feel safer because everybody has a baseline understanding. Like nobody can say they don't know what the rules are. Do you think that all this stuff has helped? Like, do you think that it makes these situations less likely. I think that's where I am confused because it's like, I feel really good in these settings where I'm with the 50 other CCEs or leading these workshops. And then I go to a frat party or just a non-frat party and it feels like your textbook party with guys at the door and guys pouring drinks and um, frats aren't allowed under like university-wide policy we can't lead any workshops officially with the frats or we can't like intervene with them because what do you mean frats aren't like yale doesn't allow frats what like so they're just privately rented houses either by the national chapter or by like the group of dudes who live in the house and it's like its own running thing like Yale does not give any... So there's no way you can even reinforce this with them if you wanted to, because they're just guys. Yeah, they're just guys being dudes, and we were like, <laughs> hey, can we, like, lead some workshops or, like, talk to them about these dynamics? And they're... And our You're like, you can try, bitch. Jump in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Go to the party and see if anybody wants to listen to you. Yeah. It feels like there's this sort of inevitable college trope that, like, we're never going to break, and we can say all the right things like in the daylight hours and then it'll all revert back to like what everyone knows actually happens Uh, and the fact that it's Yale like yeah I mean I was saying to Evangelia earlier and we've said this on the podcast before too like but like (laughs) Yale just has like a really like a specific kind of sex pesty vibe and I was saying that like I honestly think it's because it's like it's like a little gay like a lot of gay men there and like a little Jewish too and like when something's like kind of gay kind of Jewish like gives it a little bit of a sex pesty vibe like me like me (laughs) all of us (laughs) (laughs) and like 
I would raise you Brett Kavanaugh, but like that's I a think different that kind of sex pasty vibe, right? Okay, okay. <laughs> I, I'm very curious though, like what your guys's perception of the university is. I mean, I like went there for a summer to do a program, so I got like a good idea of what it looks like there and the kind of people that occupy the space. It is one of the few places in my life that I genuinely felt like I was less than the other people because of how they acted, uh, and that like usually doesn't happen because I'm like pretty chill and hot and stuff and not the faculty it was really nice but the other students there was a sense of competitiveness I guess just because we were even associated with the name of a school that has prestige like it's just like creates something in people that makes them hyper vigilant I guess in certain ways yeah I've seen it like through FaceTime Evangelia during that one summer and also like I went there once because the Yale political union had like a debate with Dasha Nekrasova a few months ago and so I went for that and like I don't know it's crazy it's a crazy place they wouldn't stop saying that they go to Yale like and it was so <laughs> funny because it's like we know that we're at Yale like we don't need to be reminded this many times like we know where we are I think there's something like particularly funny about Yale because it's the second most prestigious school in the country which just like that has to create like a lot of really <laughs> funny complexes in people like I yeah. think people like have that like dual inferiority superiority <laughs> complex because they go to a super prestigious school but they don't go to Harvard <laughs> so there's like the need to prove themselves I'm so sorry if I'm insulting you by saying <laughs> no 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 this is uh, this is good to hear put into words because I definitely like experience and there's like funny ways that like people will refer to Harvard or like oh I'm sure I'm sure I would love to just like observe Yale students talking about Harvard like that would be a great afternoon for me (laughs) (laughs) I mean you should pull up to the Harvard Yale football game oh oh, I would love who's better at football we're both so bad at football I would imagine I I didn't even like I didn't even fathom that Yale or Harvard had a football team you know it's ridiculous because they're like D1 schools technically but like not d1 athletes but like no offense like it seems like a great place i'm sure they have great academics your education must be so big good (laughs) i mean i don't know i think that there's like the people who like you were saying take an excuse to say that they go and then there are the people who like will go to great lengths to not say that they go to Yale. Like, at the football game, they were selling sweatshirts that said, like, small liberal art school in Connecticut. So that's kind of, like, the flip side of the joke. I have a Yale hoodie, though, so I do, like, kind of the opposite thing, where it's, like, funny because it has, like, right. a bunch of holes burned into it from drugs and stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's not so much about society. I like that. We, you guys do it back. <laughs> um. So do you want to tell us what... What happened? Yeah, what the, the fuck situation. is going down at that school? Because I know we made some allusions to the sex pestery, and you did say that the frat life is a little sus. Sometimes. So, in as much detail as you want to provide. And yeah, you're allowed to because we know this yeah. is a complicated situation. Tell us what happened. But don't be afraid to say in Minecraft if you want to say something technically, not get in trouble for it because that actually works. Wait, say more about the Minecraft caveat. Yeah, that's a thing. That's what YouTubers do to talk about um, things that happen. Like, if you say that it happened in Minecraft, you can get away with saying Oh, wow. Whatever. Yeah, or like, it's like saying joke after you say, like, I post on Instagram that I want to bomb an expressway, but then I said joke. <laughs> There's, like, a new language emerging on TikTok with, like, people talking about drugs or, like, violence, but then, like, with all yep. of these linguistic workarounds, which I love. Um but in either case, at my school or in Minecraft, um, 
<laughs> something that I got really interested in last year, kind of in my capacity as a CCE and also just like as a person going to parties and meeting people. I was interested in the way that frats and social spaces were using blacklists as a way to prevent sexual misconduct on campus. So who is who makes the blacklist at these and what kind of social groups are we talking about? There's like the traditional frat social groups which are like affiliated with the national chapters and then there are a couple like all male groups that were initially frats and dif- disaffiliated from the Panhellenic chapter and like changed their names so they're just like their own freestanding Yale group. Um, and then there are a couple others that went co-ed, like disaffiliated, and then also started accepting non-men. And those ones are like known for being like more progressive, more liberal, trying to reform frat culture as we know it. There was like a pretty famous cut article a couple years ago about one of them called Eden, which is like written by one of the first girls in that group after they went co-ed. And it got some flack, but she was talking about the way that they've approached sexual harm that's happened in the frat in the past, and then basically like concluded the article being like, but now like us girls, we just have to return to the party. And everyone was like, what? What? (laughs) (laughs) Let's get drinking, bitches. Pour it up. (laughs) Let's spread them. Yeah. (laughs) That's crazy. Well, I mean, I guess she's having fun, but she can keep that to herself. Like, if you want to be the only girl in a frat and tell everyone to get lit, like, that's your prerogative, I guess. Queen shit. (laughs) I mean, in, like, the context for that, which, like, leads into the blacklist thing, is that she was talking about a situation where, like, they were at one of the parties after the frat went co-ed and, like, someone at the party was, like, a known abuser And her friend kind of freaked out and, like, had a panic attack because this person was there and, like, really shouldn't have been there. So there's, like, this vignette of her kind of calming her friend down in the bathroom of the party. And then the last line is, like, but ultimately we returned to the party. That is so... Like, I'm glad that you got over your friend being scared of her rapist. (laughs) Yeah, like... (laughs) I'm glad you're still down to do some poppers and fuck a guy named Kyle Anthony, but... um, No, it's Yale. There would be something more waspy than Anthony. Anthony. Maybe Kyle. You don't think there are Anthonys at Yale? Anthony is very... I don't know. There, yeah, there are probably there probably is Anthony. I can attest to there being Anthony. <laughs> Thanks. Not everything is like a total stereotype. <laughs> I have a very no one named Anthony goes to Yale. I have a very specific <laughs> idea. <laughs> In all frats, there's a practice of letting people both within and outside of the organization blacklist people if they've committed some act of sexual misconduct, so that you can essentially avoid the situation that the author of the cut article is faced with where like you don't have to see your abuser at a party that you go to and it's been sort of lauded as like a workaround for what people think is kind of a lacking administrative title nine process so like through the title nine office if you have had a negative incident with someone you can have the school organize a no contact agreement but people have said that like It's not ideal because a lot of it puts the restrictions on the person who has experienced the misconduct rather than the Mm. abuser. So, like, in a no-contact agreement, both people have to agree to, like, places where they will and won't go. 
And it's like, if you have experienced harm, why should you have to then not go to certain places or like risk disciplinary action if you do? when like really that should be the responsibility and consequence of the person who harmed you. So the blacklist is sort of a student-led workaround for this. Students can organize within themselves and like create spaces that are supposedly safer because they've like removed the unsafe people from those spaces. And the thing that like I and some of the other CCEs who I was talking about this with were troubled by is like, Theoretically, we're taking these unsafe people out of the spaces, but it didn't seem to be changing anything. Like, assaults were still happening. And also, there was, like, whispers of blacklists being used potentially unfairly or, like, there being a lack of due process and that people were being blacklisted for, like, any number of reasons, some of which were, like, full-blown assaults and others were more, like, interpersonal problems. And so it was, like, this one-size-fits-all solution for, like, a very nuanced array Yeah, what? Who gets to pick what assault is bad enough to get you blacklisted and what is not? I would love to have that job. Honestly, it would be awesome. Have to look at, like, whatever anonymous submissions and be like, this one's assault, assault, this one's not. not." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just playing God a little bit. Like, that and a blunt would be, like, so much fun. Oh, my God, yeah. No one should have that much power. And there's already so much of a power imbalance involved in, like, students who have access to these spaces and there's like insane rush processes and so much more demand than supply to get into these like exclusive societies and clubs and frats and then like once you're in it not only are you like part of a group that other people aren't part of but you theoretically like can control who enters and who doesn't which is like a crazy amount of power and it's happening like physically and in real time because they have people working door and people like with a list of names of other people who can't enter and then they're like cross-referencing. Right, and it's all decided by this like random council. Like who actually, who decides who, like is it just anybody well, that gets put on the... I think it's just that like the- if, a, if a student writes a name, because they don't say like what happened, they just write a name and then if that name is out there, then you're on the blacklist. Is, am That's I right? That's it? Right, so it kind of happens on a case-by-case basis. Different groups have different policies surrounding it we were doing a little bit of digging and talking to different groups and so some of them will follow up others will just take the name at face value and be like okay sure like put that name on a list how do you decide who what makes someone a safe or an unsafe person that's a really good question i'm glad you asked um and that's something that i was (laughs) thinking a lot about as i was learning about this because i was like is someone who makes another person uncomfortable and one setting inherently an unsafe person who will like continue to be unsafe in any other context that they're part of and I honestly understand that because I think like as a lesbian we always are programmed to feel like we're unsafe to other people like I don't hit on a girl first because she might think I'm like weird or something she might not want a girl to hit on her or a girl that looks like me or whatever it is you know so like I can understand the complicated areas of feeling like an unsafe person or being treated as such and like there is a genuine threat of someone being uncomfortable just because of who you are yeah yeah and and people were saying I've never like looked at a blacklist but like 
there were sort of floating accusations that more people of color were represented on blacklists than white people and mm, that like wow. there may be differences in the way that people navigate spaces based on their background that other people would code mm-hmm. as safe and unsafe and are just like different norms or different expectations right like if you're like cruising in a gay bar it's very different attitude than if you're like uh, I guess on campus really goes to show how like people's own biases come out but that gets complicated because then it's like oh no what about the victims and stuff you know that puts into question people who are making these complaints because it's like now are we questioning people that are putting down certain names and not other names like it's just like it it gets really complicated yeah absolutely and like a big part of my work as a CCE is just in like uplifting and supporting survivors it became clear that like in our capacity as CCEs we couldn't just come out and like denounce blacklists and be like stop using blacklists because that would be read as questioning the validity of claims made by survivors and usually the logic in not following up or not having an investigative process following an accusation was like to not make someone who experienced harm have to relive that and retell it and get cross-examined so it's like how do you create a fair process for people who have experienced harm. It's like a micro-justice system that has to be put in place because sexual assault is not taken seriously by the law. Like, it is so sad that this is all on you guys. Like, what the fuck? Their job. Because this feels like like that reality show that's like like Kid City or something where it's like all like 18-year-olds are in charge and have to like enforce the law and (laughs) stuff. Oh my God. Girls alone, boys alone. Yeah, this is like insane. Like, so much responsibility falls on you as an educator and as like a student who can see both sides of a situation. Yeah, no, I mean, I've had that conversation with a lot of people where it's like, we're not trained in restorative justice. You're just some guys. Like, I probably got a lot of education off TikTok. I probably eat a lot of fucking hot chips. I mean, I think it's really good that it is student-led, but I think there probably should be more reinforcements. Because, I mean, you can say all the things you want, but if there's no law, if it's a lawless Western, then they're gonna do whatever they want. Like that's what a frat party sounds like to me. It's just like everyone is like shooting from the hip. Honestly, I've been to one and it was people standing in a room and they were playing songs that I swear to God I have never heard in my life. (laughs) Like I literally was like I felt like I walked into a portal. A look into the street. It literally was. I was like, hello. Straight, that's straight culture. It is not moving, and like not dancing they don't at dance. all. It's crazy. They don't go dance. To these functions, and they're standing and they're mingling, and it's like they're preparing to go to cocktail parties when they're like rich and famous yeah. and have to mingle. Oh, like, that's not the vibe at my no. school, but I'm sure it's the vibe at your school. Yeah, but it's like it's so funny because they're doing this in such a like grimy, fratty basement. Like it's disgusting. <laughs> they're networking. <laughs> they like, literally are. Like they literally are networking and I'm like at these parties watching these people being like you're gonna be the next like secretary of state like all the power is gonna be in your hands and I watched you just like poorly shotgun that PBR like <laughs> I got so scared when I went to Yale and I witnessed the Yale political unions debate with Dasha Kosova and like this the, is the way future that, of our that country. people were so all stupid like scare. I was like and they all wanted to fuck Dasha and she was like egging it on it was gross it was everyone weird. wants to fuck Dasha a little bit but especially if you're part of the Yale Political Union. <laughs> Apparently so. Yeah, but another thing I was thinking about is, like, when you create these groups that are sort of institutional, or, like, if not institutional, at least organized, 
where like if someone is mean to your friend you're not gonna have them over to your functions anymore if you're controlling like your house like right that, and that's very clear and you don't need a blacklist to do that it's just like oh we don't fuck with this person anymore but right. then once when, when it's like the main social space on campus like it's the places that everyone goes to on a friday night then you do need these sort of more organized systems because you're not going to know everyone you're not making the guest list and like that's something i've been thinking about where like i went through a breakup this summer and my ex is like in one of these groups and didn't officially blacklist me but was like i don't want you to come to these parties anymore and that was like the only place that i went out to because it's like where the gay people go and so now I just, like, don't have that place to go to anymore. And, like, all my friends are there. And it's, like, it sucks a little bit. Um, and so, yeah. and it's, like, yeah, it's fair. Like, you were there before me. This is kind of your spot. Like, fair enough. But that's, like, what is it? Like, turf wars? Like, like it's not, like, you guys, like, that's, like, crazy. Like, you guys shouldn't have to be, like, you yeah. know, arguing over third spaces. Like, it's you just, you know, if it's, it's an amicable situation, then you guys should just, like, agree to, like, ignore the fuck out of each other like adults and not have to put each other on timeout. But it also just sucks that there's so little queer spaces that, like, this is, like, you have to see your ex at the one that I mean, that's, it's like that in New York, too. There's the a, one, no, there's three. There's, like, three. Yeah, and I, there's, a, there's a different person I want to avoid at all of those places. <laughs> so, I, I empathize, even though I'm not on a blacklist. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, it sucks to be shut out of spaces because there's not enough of them mm-hmm. anyway. So, right. but that's like like even less than a gray area, though. That's just like the social dynamics getting caught up in the legislation of the campus, and that's because it's run by the kids who are all just interacting with each other all the time. There's There's kind of two things going on at once. There's like a bunch of teenagers and young adults running around getting into relationships with each other and breaking each other's hearts and like dealing with that and picking up the pieces and like learning how to be people in the world for the first time. And then there are people seriously hurting each other. And like both things ought to be taken seriously, but like Mm -hmm. in a different way where like if you hurt someone's feelings, that's a sort of interpersonal thing that you can ideally resolve between the two of you whereas if you like really harm someone and are not taking accountability for your actions then that's where like theoretically college administration should step in because the fact that they have administration and title nine offices in the first place is sort of admitting that we're not quite old enough to like handle ourselves maturely and sometimes need grown-ups to step in and give us timeouts and so there's this sort of weird imbalance of like are we adults are we not to what extent are we mm. getting told what to do? To what extent are we making the rules ourselves? I mean, what do you think would be a more ideal system for this kind of thing? I mean, I think that if there was like the bandwidth to examine every individual case with people who are trained in restorative justice for sexual misconduct and to assess what happened, to talk to both the survivor of the harm and the perpetrator, Um, There actually is a conduct awareness program, but you have to opt into it. So I've talked to a couple people who have leadership positions in these um, social spaces who've like considered an alternative where you like mandate that if someone who's blacklisted attends a conduct awareness program, they could maybe like get back into the system, like be allowed to return because they've like learned about and hopefully corrected their actions. But there is this, there's a big sort of gray area black hole in 
restorative justice and sexual misconduct because whereas a lot of restorative justice has to do with peacemaking between the two parties, it's more complicated if someone assaults someone and you don't necessarily want them in the same room together, like making peace with each other. I have two questions. So first of all, can you actually explain what restorative justice is for the listeners? Yeah, of course. So restorative justice is a response to the very punitive form of justice that we have as a standard in the American justice system. And it examines ways that you can avoid just sending someone to jail and instead have them go through a process of learning about how their harm impacted others and doing community service and meeting. So like, it's like rehab, rehab for rapists? Well, yeah, so it's usually not for rapists, more so for like people who maybe like stole from a store or like... Oh, so how far up can you take restorative justice? Is it That's what I, that was what my second question was. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if yeah. you can do restorative justice for like a murder. That's a good question. I mean, yeah, it's like, I feel like that would be like a clockwork orange type thing where you like hold their eyes open to make them watch a lot bad. of... Yeah, <laughs> murder is bad stuff. It's interesting, you believe in restorative justice and you're like a consent educator. Do you believe that of a rapist can be rehabilitated and then like I I mean I think it's kind of obvious that like somebody who does something that's kind of more gray area probably can be rehabilitated with the right education like just like where do you align in all of this yeah well I think where I stand is anti-incarceration when at all possible and the reason that I think that that still applies to cases of sexual misconduct or rape is that there are all of these psychological studies about ostracization and the effects that that has on someone's psyche. So if you remove them from their community as punishment, they will like only build resentment and only become more violent. And so if they are reintegrated into the society, like they will have all this resentment for the people who ostracized them in the first place. And we see that in incarceration. We also see that in like someone who gets blacklisted, loses about a lot of friends. I was going to say, it. that kind of sounds like what you're talking yeah, about. Exactly. I mean, the guy who was a head pusher is probably mad as hell that all his friends get to go to Alpha Theta Beta and he has to stay home. Yeah, and, and then, like, then, then it's like, so he, then he goes out and he's like, I guess if I'm the big bad fucking whatever, like he just assumes that like Joker ass mindset and then becomes right. the president because it goes to Gale. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or he like stays home from the party and goes down some like far right rabbit hole online with a bunch of other men who feel wronged by the system and either way he's building resentment and like not becoming mm-hmm. a productive and empathetic member of a community and yeah like the fucking guy who's too drunk and gets thrown out of the club isn't gonna be like you know what I think I should really stop drinking. They did a great job at helping me towards this step. It's always just like, fuck you, fuck this place. I'm coming back and I'm going to get even drunker. So So I guess, and maybe this is super naive of me, and I think a lot of people would not agree with me, but I would like to think that someone who is like in their early 20s, hopefully is like a smart person, has space to, I don't know, learn and grow and transform. L- Oh, L. <laughs> I, I like to think that, too. I mean, I feel like every person is a human and stuff, but it's hard when that person did a big no-no. Right. Like, and the other thing is, like, okay, so you do a big no-no, and then your your biggest punishment is that, like, you can't go to a party. Like, that's not that big a deal. You're not getting thrown yeah. in jail. Like, oh, no, you can't go to the beta Keta Fata party, mm-hmm. like, yeah. whatever, you're missing a mid-party. So, like, on right. the other hand, it's like, 
people saying, okay, this is a fair punishment because either way, it's not that big a deal. Like, if they can't go to the party, whatever, maybe they'll, like, pick up crocheting and that will fix their brain. Right. I mean, also, it makes sense. Like, if you go somewhere and you rape someone, maybe you shouldn't be able to go to that place. Right. Yeah. But I think the question in this case is just, like, they're not all, like, raping. Right. They're coercing. They're, yeah. Or, or, you know, like you said it could be like an ex that just doesn't want you around because you suck. Like, I mean, coercion shouldn't you, be allowed at parties situation. either. You don't suck, you're great. But maybe they think that, you know, or like, <clears throat> yeah, coercer shouldn't be allowed. I agree, but how do you know which name is a coercer? Yeah, and also like, you know, <clears throat> what is coercion gets really, 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 really tricky. But what is coercion? I think coercion is, the, is when someone is giving clear either verbal or nonverbal cues that they're not interested because if someone is really not interested in something like they're going to turn their body away they're going to avoid eye contact they're going to rope in a third party like there are things that they'll do and if the person is still pushing and still like making advances or propositions even when the other person is giving those cues I think that that gets into the realm of coercion and like it's like there's a vibe of discomfort that like is easy for outside parties to pick up on and especially easy for the people involved to pick up on and I see it all the time I see people interacting and I'm like that doesn't look fun like it doesn't look like they're vibing and enjoying each other's company right now and so I think that like that's where it gets into a place where it's like you should know better stop like yeah take the L Mm -hmm. I mean I know that you know that we all know that I, it's hard. I guess we ask on behalf of the people who still seem to be confused about that stuff. Yeah, there's also, like, early research being done on people who are, like, non-neurotypical, having different communication patterns and skills. Yeah, I was going to ask. I was like, all those autistic bitches at Yale might not be able to tell, like, the social cues (laughs) that are going on. I'm sorry. It's fine. Look, it's okay that I say that. And it's for their sake. Like, a lot of people don't read people well. Like, people with ADHD, people all across the spectrum read people differently. That's the whole point of the mental shit that goes on. Like, it's just different, you know? So how do you account for that? I mean, you guys... You know, I, I thought I answered my own question in my head because I was like, you guys do that baseline kind of teaching people that stuff. But it's not something you learn, I guess, in just one sitting, yeah. like picking up on social cues. Something that you have to integrate into like masking in society. And some people who are more people pleasing might just give in to somebody who seems to be persistent and not reading their cues. I would say that's a person who can be taught to pick up on cues. And I would say that that's really unfair to like ostracize someone because they're still learning like a very complicated and nuanced language of nonverbal and emotional and messy yeah absolutely and I've also talked to people who have blacklisted other people and have just said like when you feel like your personal autonomy is violated by someone else like all you want to do is regain your power by limiting someone else's personal autonomy and like blacklists are really good for that that's a really good yeah. point that's a really fascinating point if someone's like getting up in your space and not respecting your boundaries either physically or emotionally like you can retaliate by saying like okay don't come to my parties anymore i don't think that blacklists are adequate for restorative justice but i do think that they are really powerful tools in 
giving agency to survivors. So how do you think ideally the blacklist could be a good tool, a better tool? Yeah, and how does it not escalate to the point of like people's personal interactions getting involved in bigger legislative things? There's a lot of talk about banning going around like just in society these days. I don't know if we're entering a state of fascism or something, but like everyone wants to ban everything. I think it's like an information overload. I think like everybody just wants to put confines on everything. So everyone wants that like kind of retaliative thing to take control and to assert space because we feel like we don't have yeah, much. Like, I think what do we that do? the long term goal and what we talk about a lot in the CCE program is like when we have achieved our goal we won't need to exist anymore like the CCE program will be obsolete because it will be common knowledge for everyone and until then we're just going to like educate and educate and educate and hope that it has this sort of chain reaction where like more CCEs occupy different social spaces and spread this information among their own communities and then they pass it on to people who spread it among their communities to a point where like blacklists are not even on the table. I would like to be in a place where no one is blacklisting, but I don't think that students have the capacity to create the infrastructure where that is feasible. I don't see that happening in like my next two years of being a student here. So who does it? I mean, I've seen some really awesome leadership in the admin side of the CCE program, like young, cool, interesting people who have a lot of knowledge on this sort of thing, I think more of those people in positions of power. Are the people who are currently in a position of power addressing the blacklist situation at all? We were like, can we like say the word blacklist? They were like, no, you can't say the word blacklist. You were blacklisted from saying blacklist? Damn. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Because like blacklists are also not allowed in the university policy. So we can't either like condone or denounce them. So this is some fight club underground bullshit you guys got going on. in the middle of a rock and a hard spot for real. Like... (laughs) (laughs) And then the other crazy thing is I was trying to write an article about this because I'm like writing for my student magazine and I was like telling people that I was granting them anonymity until I remembered that I'm a mandatory reporter for the CCE program. So if I hear about an instance of sexual misconduct, I have to report it to my boss. And I was like, okay, so like you're anonymous, but I also have to tell the dean. Which Mm. felt really shitty. Well, but there's nothing that protects them from you snitching. I'm sorry I phrased it like that. I mean, no, like, I, I'm a professional snitch. Like, I get paid $50 <laughs> I mean, an you're hour snitching snitch. on, like, the right kind of thing, I think. I'm like, that, yeah, I snitch for justice. But, like, still, it's it felt really weird as, like, a peer and as a journalist. Um, yeah, I mean, isn't that a moral gray area? It should be just called like, the gray area. Little gray area. We're all yeah. in our own little gray areas, Aww. I guess. 50, 50 shades, shades of gray um, areas, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel a little bit weird about it. It feels like it kind of changes the way that I interact with my friends and, like, am there for them just as their friend, but then also have to, like, let them know that I am employed by Man, the university. This sucks that people just keep raping on each other. Like, knock it off, guys. <laughs> yeah. Like, seriously, stop. Not like, cool. Look what it's doing you to a mall and their friends. So that's really what it boils down to. Everyone seems to be moving with a lot of discomfort, anxiety, and fear on this campus. And everywhere. Really a microcosm for everything. Yeah, well, that's why this whole thing is fascinating, because it seems like your campus is a perfect example of the culture situation that we're seeing in America today. Yeah, I think both with kind of the 
punitive justice, the rape culture. And it's like, it feels like a microcosm in the way that we get to practice these dynamics before we like enter the big cruel real world. But it's also a microcosm in the sense that like people are doing the same shit here that they're going to continue to do. And it's like not really practicing because like people are causing real harm and that like needs to be taken seriously in the same way that it would be taken seriously outside of the context of a college campus. Definitely. For (laughs) sure. I think that college campuses are a big tool that get used in like political, the culture war. all the time. College campuses were the first arena of the culture war. Exactly. And so this is like the perfect example of that, like the blacklisting situation. I think the idea of restorative justice that you're talking about is interesting. I'm buddies with like the rabbi at the Slifka Center at Yale. Awesome. Um, And he was telling me about this like Jewish like lore where there was a rabbi who many, many hundreds of years ago did something bad that no one knew what it was. And another rabbi excommunicated him from the community. And 20 years later, the rabbi who excommunicated this guy was like on his deathbed. And he was like, I can die happy knowing that I did the right thing and that I removed a harmful person from our community. And it's often looked at as a story of protecting the community and like maybe this person was like a pedophile or maybe this person was a sexual assaulter in some other way and like um, like you take the bad person out and then someone else was like, okay, but what if this person was gay? Like what if it was a sexual taboo that we don't agree with anymore? And like the rabbi's like, I can die happy knowing that I like kicked the gay guy out of the community. <laughs> and so I'm not Thank saying that God, like... God, that fag is yeah. on the road. Yeah, and it's like... I'm always saying that. Yeah. <laughs> and like, it obviously sexual assault is not a sexual taboo that we're going to debunk. Like, no one is saying that. But people's interpretation of sex is different and very complicated yeah. and can't be prescribed a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. It has to be thought through. I think you're right that it has to be a case-by-case situation that involves counselors and people who are genuinely interested in this idea of restorative justice and have the best interest. It can't be led with anger. It has to be led with love. And um, and that gets complicated because people get angry because who the fuck wants that to happen to them? It's pretty inspiring to hear that, you know, these nuanced conversations are happening in these places yeah. that are harboring some of our future... World leaders. Yeah, yeah. I guess. You know, <laughs> they're scary. It's scary that, that that's actually true and going to have to happen because we're all going to have to grow up to be those people. College campuses are like kid city, essentially. <laughs> yeah. No, it's kind of hilarious to me. It's like a bunch of people just running around LARPing, being adults, and we're like, we have the newspaper. It's cute. It's kind of adorable. Yeah. <laughs> College campuses in general are kind of adorable. You just love walkable cities. Oh, yes, I That's do. That's what she likes. It's just like that it's a community-oriented walkable city. Yeah. Like, it's so All cute. these people are like, College is the best years of my life, and it's like, no bitch living in a walkable, a walkable city, city is the best year of your it's life. Like Disney World. Disney World. College. <laughs> you're, just, you're trying to get a walkable city. You want yeah. a walkable city. You want third spaces. <laughs> you want a walkable city like you want to live close to your friends thank you so much for coming if there's anything else that you want to say or I don't know if you want to like plug yourself if you're doing anything interesting then um, wrap up. I'm in a band it's called Free at Five uh, we're trying to get off the ground so follow us on Instagram nice. free dot at dot F-I-V-E yeah awesome nice and we'll give that a listen too we don't yeah. have music out yet but 
<laughs> oh. <laughs> well, we'll go on the Instagram yeah, and check it out. When you guys release music, we'll be listening. Yeah, mm-hmm. I appreciate that in the future. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. I'm sure you educate a lot of people who are listening. Yeah, um, keep up the good work. Yeah, same to I you guys. guys. That was a lovely conversation. Yeah, it's kind of fucking crazy what's going down. Like, this, <laughs> the idea of, like these frat guys buying their way out of like or just men in general buying their ways out of like adhering to workshops and seminars about sexual misconduct by denouncing themselves from the university as private groups yeah it's men really they just know how to weasel their way out of everything it's so crazy and like the whole operation the fact that blacklists aren't allowed and frats aren't allowed but there's blacklists and frats still it's like this whole like they're all Yale students so they're slimy (laughs) (laughs) they're practicing for when they're human rights lawyers and they have to argue why X thing wasn't actually a war crime. Mm, Yeah, 100%. Cancel culture in general is exhausting for, like, everybody. Like, the frustration of having to figure out how to, like, catch them (laughs) and also how to not catch them too hard that anybody gets upset. Catch or be catched. It's kind of hot. It's kind of hot. It's kind of hot. Is that, is that the takeaway of the episode, Emily? Why did I... Can I say catch or be caught? I said catch or be catched. <laughs> catched in the act. I'm just going to say um, caught or be caught. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay. I'm putting all of this in. <laughs> catch or be caught. Mm-hmm. You, now you said it with no confidence. <laughs> All of my confidence has been broken down by somehow saying it wrong four times. But, you know, we want to draw attention to the fact that, like, the burden of figuring this stuff out always tends to fall on, like, the victims and on queer people and on women. And we're always, like, kind of having to corral and educate and... It's, like, fun when you like to talk to people and, like, speak down to people and educate them, (laughs) as we do. But at the end of the day, it's, like, these are actual people's lives that have to be, like, bargained for. Yeah, and it's funny because, like, queer people and women will put all of this work in to try and educate people. And then, like, the men will just Just weasel their way out of it. Yeah, they love, you know... Try slipping in. They love doing that. Yeah, (laughs) that's so true. Try slipping in because we know you like to do that in every other context. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, it is both sides because both the left and the right have this tendency to overban things and just like love banning shit, love Everybody loves to ban things. Who doesn't love to ban stuff? I get it, you know, but it, that takes like kind of complicated turns. Like, I mean, I remember when I was in rehab, like there was this huge mass expose of all of the like LES skater boys and all of like the St. Mark's kids and all of the sketchy rapey boys. So all of them. So yes, (laughs) pretty much. It was like a huge thing. I guess some list went out like like, similar to a blacklist. It was basically like an IG follow blacklist. Like if you follow those people, you were in support of them kind of. Like you said, every guy in New York was like associated with that. Um, And unfortunately, I didn't get the memo. I was in rehab and we didn't have iPhones. I didn't see the list. I didn't have my iPhone. I wasn't on Instagram for two months. So I didn't get to unfollow one of the people who was on the list that I had been following. And because of that, I got put on a list of supporters of these people. <laughs> if you're still following this person, just know that they follow this person. Wow, that thank kind of God thing. they didn't put the people who follow the people who follow. <laughs> it's like, how far back are we really going? It seems to happen a 
on like Stan Twitter like all the time. It would be like if you still follow this person, blah 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 blah. Like yeah. No, exactly. It was very reminiscent of Stan Twitter. It's very much like, and I understand how people could be frustrated with that. It's like if someone did something horrible to your friend, you don't want to follow someone that still like follows someone everyone else has unfollowed them. But at the same time, there's nuance involved. Like yeah, you were in rehab, I you wasn't didn't there. Have your phone. So like I literally wasn't there. And like the second I saw it, and I saw my because people were DMing me, being like, "Hey, girl, like you should probably unfollow." And maybe that's why people thought that I was just ignoring them or something. But I was like, I haven't posted in sixty days, and um, I just got my token of sobriety. So let's not. <laughs> I feel like we all should give me a round of applause, actually. But what happened when I came back is that I had lost like a thousand followers, <laughs> and I was so disappointed because I really didn't want people to feel like I was supporting someone but that's the thing about how far back blacklist can go because it's like okay do you know this person do you know this person who knows this person are you support are you friends with the girlfriend of the guy that did the thing and it's like you want to not be but you can't always be on top of everything everybody knows each other in the world yeah, everyone in the world knows each other. Everybody in the world knows that each other. That is true. No, everybody is connected, I guess. And also, like, when it's something through, like, social media, uh, it gets really sketchy and blurry. And the same goes for, like, physical social spaces where mm-hmm. it's just, like, yeah, like, everyone does know each other. Everyone has talked to each other. How, what, at what point do you draw the line of, like, this person is a bad or unsafe person? You know, separating people from spaces, unfollowing them, whatever it is, it's, like, it's everyone's prerogative, like Amal said. That's the complicated part. Like, you can obviously be like, if you've hurt my friend, you're not allowed in my space. That makes perfect sense. But then it extends past that because we live in an age where the lines are pretty blurred between, like, people's social life and everyone's perception of them. Like, everyone is kind of turned outward in a way that only celebrities right. had been in the past. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess that that's kind of a theme of the podcast is that we're all being treated that way and all of our lives are under a microscope yeah. at all times because of surveillance culture and social media and you know yeah. all the lovely things we've talked and about and it's both sides because now victims are under a microscope too because it's like you know you don't want to challenge people when they say that something wrong has happened to them but you also want to see like at what point do you take action you know <laughs> and when I say that I say it loosely because I'm talking about getting into a frat party but right. <laughs> you know it's like when the institution of like frats and college partying and just like the social scene in general is populated by this. What do you do about it besides dismantling the whole thing? Now, I know you were just saying that everybody loves to ban everything, but let's ban frats. No. Yeah. I mean, they did though, but, and that's why they're allowed to get around it and they don't have to go real. But then can you ban five guys renting a house together? Mm, you really can't ban that. Unfortunately, you can't. They should ban that, too, because five guys shouldn't live in a house together. <laughs> Nothing good can come of five guys living in a house together. There's a reason that women were in charge of the finances and home life and taught the men how to fight when we were all living in caves. And um, <laughs> Well, that, you know, there actually were female uh, hunters in hunter-gatherer societies. Well, that's what I'm saying. They were the leaders. They taught them how to hunt and gather. Oh, I don't anxiety. know anything about yeah, hunter-gatherers. They, they, they found plenty of burial sites with female warriors oh, who nice. would have their weapon with them, the same as the men. Awesome. But archaeologists had their own internalized bias, so they would say that those were probably their cooking tools or their home <laughs> economic materials. Oh, oh, of course. Even though they were the same spears and all the same shit, you know, that but the men Because it was had. a girl because, skeleton. And because they were, like, high-caliber weaponry, they didn't believe that a woman would be capable. But in reality, women were the ones who were teaching and training these oh. things. And um, what I'm saying is that frats need a warrior woman to keep them all in check at all times mm-hmm. if we're ever going to have any hope in them. Yeah, true. Frats should be like 
training grounds for men. Like they should have to do things on a regular basis. It should be more like a military kind of boot camp style situation run by really like crazy mean dykes that are the managers of the yeah, local fast food Yeah, and like the worse place. the frat behaves, like the meaner the dyke they get yeah, the they next get, year. Yeah, they have to up it. We definitely need some mean dykes to run frats like the Navy. Yeah, for sure. For but sure. again, the responsibility falling Fun on dykes. Name. It's like, we're, we're the only people that can get shit done. I'm sorry. Um, it's a burden it's we have to bear. It's because as lesbians, we don't fall for men's tricks. Right, yes. And I love that about us, but unfor- we're just God's bravest soldiers at all times. Yeah, mm-hmm. so true. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at What's Gonna Happen Pod or on Twitter at WGH Pod. And don't forget to subscribe to our Patreon where we take requests for episode topics, Q&As, and post bonus episodes every once in a while. And from the Yale Title IX office, this has been <laughs> What's Gonna Happen. What's Gonna Happen?